And now, Father, we return once again to the Gospel of John, and we lay this book before you, we lay our hearts before you, we lay our minds before you, and ask you, Father, send your Spirit to speak to us, to teach us, to train us in righteousness, to correct us, to encourage us, to do whatever is necessary, that we might become more like Christ in our sanctification and that we would become more effective witnesses of the glory of Christ in this world, the people to whom we relate, our family and friends, co-workers, neighbors. Oh, Father, may they see the light of the glory of Christ in our lives. And may our words that follow be an adequate representation of the gospel and the glory of Christ so that others can know the salvation and the forgiveness that we have found in him. Praise you, Father, for this morning of worship and the songs that we sang. And now speak to us and change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in John chapter 1, and I'd like to start off with somewhat of a um, contrived illustration. But let me, let, let's just say for a minute that you have been given the monumental task of persuading the world that a certain man, let's call him Bob, that a certain man was the greatest human being who ever lived. How would you do that? How would you convince the world that Bob is the greatest human, per, human being who has ever lived? Well, one of the things that you could do is you could tell the world about Bob's great accomplishments, things that he has done, perhaps buildings he's built or foundations or whatever. And you might want to reveal something about the depth of Bob's wisdom and uh, the greatness of his writings and teaching You might go out of your way to demonstrate the quality of his impeccable character as a man. And all of that would be very helpful, but suppose you could also interview someone who was considered by the majority to be the greatest existing man in the world to date. What if you could could talk to that man and on television or in some kind of recording... Listen to him say, you may think I'm great, but compared to Bob, um, I am nothing more than a common bathroom janitor. Bob is so great, so awesome, so magnificent. You can trust him. You can trust him. Well, that would be impressive. You had the greatest man in the known world saying that your man was the greatest man, greater than him. And and I offer this as somewhat of a crude illustration of what the Apostle John is doing here in chapter 1 of his gospel. John, his stated purpose is to induce us to believe or to keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing we would have life in his name. And so that's his stated purpose. And throughout this gospel, he will reveal many of Jesus' accomplishments, many of the things that Jesus did, many of the of the miracles. John calls them signs, and there are seven of them plus the resurrection that he will focus on. And, and John will dazzle us with the wisdom of Jesus' teaching, and especially his responses to those who are hostile to him and who come to entrap him. And John will reveal Jesus' unimpeachable character throughout, so that even when they are attempting to convict him of a crime worthy of death, they can't 
They can't find two people who can agree on any accusation. But here at the beginning of John's gospel, he doesn't do any of that. What he starts off with is an appeal to the man whom the Jewish world considered the greatest human being alive. John appeals to his testimony. Namely, he appeals to the testimony of none other than John the Baptist. Now, last week we watched as John the Baptist, time after time, minimized himself in order to maximize the glory of Christ. We noted last time that Jesus, um, at this point, Jesus had already been baptized by John. You remember that? Uh, John kind of jumps into the middle of this story, assuming that we've read some of the other details. He assumes we already know about Jesus' baptism because we have read the other Gospels. He assumes that. Remember, John is writing really late. Most of the other apostles are already dead by the time he writes the, the Gospel of John. And so he's assuming you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he feels the freedom to skip major things that had happened in the life of Jesus because you already know them. And here he focuses on, on John's testimony. And so Jesus had already been baptized. He'd already run into the desert for 40 days. He'd probably just come out of the desert. Uh, Matthew tells us that he went to Galilee first, kind of his home area, and then he makes a beeline down to the Jordan River. And he's on a lookout for John. And so this is what we read. There's the context. This is what we read in our text for this morning. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29. The apostle writes, The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water, he said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And there you have it. The greatest man in the world saying, I am not the greatest man in the world. One is coming after me who is. He is the very Son of God. Now, last week we talked about the heart of witnessing, the heart of evangelism. Today I want us to talk about the message of witnessing or the message of evangelism. Um, when we have the opportunity to speak to others about Jesus, the assumption here is that you're living a life as we talked about last week, last week, that minimizes self and magnifies Christ. By your life, you're saying, he must increase, I must decrease. You win a hearing from other people, not by exalting yourself, but by exalting Christ. Assuming that you're living like that, and you're training your kids to live like that. 
Nobody gets saved by that, but they might be attracted to hear you speak if you live like that. And when you speak, what will you say? When you tell someone about Christ and invite them to put all of their hope, all of their trust in Christ, what will you say? What will you say? Well, John the Baptist helps us with this because in this text, he basically answers three questions. And those are the three things we're going to talk about this morning. We're not going to try to pick out every word of this text, but three, three questions that he answers, and here they are. Who is Jesus? What has he done? And how do we know? How do we know is really important because you can just make up the other stuff. So who is Jesus? What has he done? And how do we know? If I'm going to put my faith in him, if I'm going to hang all of my hope of eternal life, if I'm going to submit to all the implications of the reality that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if I'm going to live for him, if I'm going to give my life away to him, I need to know, who is he, what has he done, and how can I know? How can I know for sure? And so let's unpack these questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Notice verse 29, this is where we start. Remember on the previous day, John the Baptist has testified about one who is greater than himself, and he said, this person is so great, the thong of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie, verse 27. In other words, um, I am not even worthy to do what the most base, common slave is expected to do. I'm not worthy of that when it comes to Jesus But frankly, all of this is kind of a cryptic statement that revealed neither the identity of the person nor when he would arrive. Who is this one who is so much greater than the greatest man living? Who is he? Chapter 20, or verse 29 tells us. Verse 29 tells us. Because here the Baptist makes his identity, the identity of this greater individual, abundantly clear. And look at verse 29. He says this, The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. The question is, who is Jesus? Answer, he is the Lamb of God. No doubt Jesus had concluded his 40 days in the desert. He was now coming to visit the one man in the world with whom he could enjoy the sweetest fellowship I mean, think about it. Aside from Jesus himself, no one knew God like John the Baptist. No one knew John like, like God like John the Baptist. He was a prophet of God. He had been specifically called by God into the ministry. God had spoken to him directly, and he clearly knew and understood the Scriptures. It reminds me of David Brainerd who said, I can speak with many brothers about religion, but there are oh so few with whom I can discuss religion in itself. In other words, Christianity, true Christianity. There's a difference between talking about religion and glorying in Christ. And you've got to know, Jesus loved John the Baptist. I mean, you love anybody you can, you can enjoy that sweet, sweet fellowship with, that pure and holy fellowship in Christ. And that's certainly the case with John the Baptist. We have good reason to believe that John not only heard the voice of God, but he had heard and probably spent many hours talking with Jesus 
about how God was leading them. Besides that, John, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. They were family. They were family. They knew each other. They were in the same family. What's more, Jesus knew that his own ministry could not begin in earnest until his forerunner, who was John the Baptist, announced him. And so after he leaves, 40, 40 days in the desert, he has that, that meal that the angels bring him. He goes over to Galilee, probably checks in with family, and then he immediately heads down to the Jordan River to find John. And this is the context. This is the context. And so when John sees him, no greetings, no, how was your time on, on the camp out? None of that stuff. He just turns to him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. Context here, it was the day before that John was preaching and he said, Don't look at me, I'm nothing. I'm not the Christ, I'm not, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I'm nobody, I'm just a voice. There is someone coming after me who is infinitely greater than I am because even though he comes after me, he existed before me. And so now here, the next day, Jesus appears and John says, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is him. This is the one I spoke to you of. Who is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God. He's the Lamb of God. There's been a lot of discussion throughout the centuries about what John may have been referring to with regard to the lamb. What, what lamb is he referring to? I mean, was he speaking of the Passover lamb, the, the, technically called the Paschal lamb? You know, every year at the Passover, the, this is the, the day of atonement where the high priest would once a year go into the Holy, Holy of Holies and offer the blood of the sacrifice. And the people would celebrate the Passover. They would eat a lamb together and the bitter herbs reminding how God rescued his people out of Egypt. Was it that lamb? Or was it the lamb of the, of the daily offering? Every day, morning and evening, there was a lamb sacrificed to God on behalf of God's people. Um, was he pointing to that passage in Isaiah 53 that speaks of the Messiah being like a lamb who is led to slaughter? What a great text that is. Or the gentle lamb predicted by the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah eleven nineteen, Or was he referring to the scapegoat of the Old Testament who carried off the sins of the people? Or was it the triumphal lamb of Revelation that John the Apostle would write about later when he writes the book, the apocalypse we call the book of Revelation? Could he have been thinking of the lamb that God provided for Abraham when he was told to go sacrifice his son and God stopped him and provided a lamb? Was it that lamb? Or was it the lamb of the guilt offering? Hmm. Well, what's the answer? Let me give you the answer. I think probably the best answer to that question is yes, 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 and yes. All of it, all of it, every single one of those lambs was a shadow of the substance who would be the Christ. Jesus fulfilled all of that. He fulfilled it all. And besides, John doesn't say anything to pin down this title down to uh, one example of a lamb. In reality, they were all shadows. 
They were all shadows. That's the way Paul describes it in Colossians. These things are but shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. He is the Lamb of God. He is the Lamb of God. That's who Jesus is. But more than that, you know what else he is? Not only Lamb of God, but Son of God. This is huge. And the whole gospel is grounded in this one. And where do we get that? Well, verse 34. It's kind of like John sandwiched his two titles of Jesus at the beginning and at the end of this statement on this particular day. He's introducing Jesus, and how's he introducing him? He's the Lamb of God, and in case you don't get the nuance there of what I'm actually saying, he finishes by saying, he is the Son of God. Look at verse 34. I myself have seen. In other words, I testify to you. I am an eyewitness of these things. I myself have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. He's the Son of God. And so that's how John concludes his testimony. That is, Jesus is not simply a great man. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a prophet. He's not, he's not any of those things. What he is is the Son of God who shares the same nature with the Father. In other words, Jesus is God. He is a son of the Father. We, we joke when, whenever my kids, whenever my boys do something silly, you know, somebody, usually me, will say, you know, the nut doesn't fall far from the tree. We're made from the same stuff. And that's the same as it is with the Son, except the Son is deity. He is made of the same stuff as his Father. He has the same genetic code, so to speak. He is God, as the Father is God, as the Spirit is God. So Jesus, the Son, is God. And this is where the image of our witness begins. This is where the message of the gospel begins. That is to say, the fact that Jesus, the fact of Jesus' deity, the fact that he is the very logos of God, the creator and sustainer of all that exists, the fact that he is the Logos of God is the very ground and foundation of the message we preach. Everything else in the message stands or falls upon whether or not Jesus is actually God. You can say all the other nice things, say there's forgiveness, say there's reconciliation, say there's peace with God, All of that is false if Jesus is not God. And so think about it. If Christ were only a man, then his death on the cross may have been an inspiring story of determination and personal forgiveness and human innocence, but there is nothing in it to save a world of sinners from eternal judgment. Nothing if he is only a man. There's no possibility of atonement if Jesus is not God. There's no ransom to be paid That has been paid. There's no propitiation that is satisfying the wrath of God. And there is therefore now no reconciliation with God. And we are all still under just condemnation. Without hope and without God in this world. If Jesus is not God. And so let me just encourage you that when you do finally have an opportunity 
to share the message that you have been living, the message of the gospel. When it comes out of your mouth in words, when you're sharing the message, make sure you're careful to establish who Jesus is. Because you cannot assume that people know. Now, if if you're from Texas or from anywhere in the South, everybody knows Jesus. Everybody thinks they knew. Yasser Arafat thought he knew Jesus. Um, But here's the thing. You may may know the name, and you may have some ideas about him. It doesn't mean that you're thinking about the same person. If you come to me and say, hey, I met your neighbor, neighbor Jim. I say, really? You met my neighbor? I like my neighbor. He's, He's a great guy. I said, yeah, you know, he's just a jolly old fellow. I'm just so glad that I met him. You know, he's, and he's such a big guy. He's got that big belly and that bald head. And, uh, and where'd you meet him? I, I met him over at Lockheed. And I go, my neighbor doesn't work at Lockheed. He's as skinny as a beanpole, and he's got a full head of hair. You think you know Jim, my neighbor. You know some other Jim with different attributes, lives at a different address, works at a different location, got a different employer. I don't know who the gym is that you know, but the gym that I live next to is not that guy. And that's the way it is a lot of times when we're talking about Jesus. Oh, Jesus will never condemn anyone. He's all love. He's all forgiveness. What's your favorite verse in the Bible? Judge not, lest you be judged. Um, Really? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. At least that's not a complete picture. What about the Jesus? You know, the Jesus of the Bible says, I've not come to bring peace on the earth, but a sword. Um, There's a lot more to Jesus than what you're describing. Maybe the Jesus that you have put your trust in is not the Jesus of the Bible. And And if that's the case, you're in trouble because you've made your own God. And that God can't save you. He can't save you. And you know what? There are cults and false religions all around the world, and every one of them has another gospel. Believe me, I've been, to you, I've been in the Yucatan jungle. I've been to, um, to Haiti. I've been to Uganda. I've been in the remotest parts of the, the former Soviet Union and to Tajikistan up in the mountains. And you know what? The cults are all there. Every one of those places. Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, you got Buddhism, you got variations of Catholicism and their false gospel. And you'll go and you'll talk to these people and they all know Jesus, but not the Jesus, not the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus who is God. You ask a Jehovah's Witness about Jesus and they'll say, oh man, we love Jesus. Really? We love Jesus too. That's great. We must be brothers in Christ. Mormons especially. They call themselves Christians. We love Jesus. And the Muslims will say they love Jesus more than you love Jesus. You know why? Because you say that God killed him on the cross, and we say God rescued him before he got there. Different Jesus. It's a different Jesus. Beloved, we can't take this for granted. We can't take it for granted that the people we speak to about Jesus actually know who Jesus is. The primary goal of the gospel, listen, is not to enable sinners to find, uh, find things that they're looking for outside of God. The purpose of the gospel is to find peace with God. 
peace with God. And I don't mean the peace that passes all understanding, the warm, fuzzy, you know, the, the, the uh, quiver in your liver, any of that stuff. I'm not talking about that kind of peace, not a sense that all is well in the world. No, peace as opposed to enmity, peace as opposed to war, peace as opposed to being the object of the wrath of the king. What we need and what the gospel offers is peace with eternal almighty God. Only God can bring such peace. You following me? Only God can bring peace with God. And Jesus had to be God. And that's why the Son of God came. Only the Son of God could stand be- between the Father and the just objects of his wrath to bring about peace. As God, Jesus is the one who both demanded the sacrifice for sin because he's holy, 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 and he is the one who offered the sacrifice, and he was the sacrifice. He is God, he is the high priest, and he is the lamb. It's amazing. Beloved, as far as the gospel is concerned, that's who Jesus is to sinners. He's the lamb of God. We need to be careful not to assure people um, that they already know that Jesus. You need to ask questions. You need to think about it. They need to find out if the Jesus that they claim to trust is the real Jesus. We need to be careful not to assume people already know these things. John didn't. John didn't. He didn't, he didn't assume, despite the miracles that were coming, that people would figure this out. He knew his job. His job was proclaim the truth, namely the message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, there's certainly a lot more that could be said about Jesus' deity, but suffice it to say that the foundation of the gospel is who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God who is the Son of God. Jesus is God, and he is the sacrifice that God demands. So secondly, the message of the gospel should include not only the answer to the question, who is Jesus, but also the answer to the question, what has Jesus done? What has Jesus done? So look with me at verse 19 again. John the Baptist says this, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what Jesus does. That's what he has done. And so the first and most important thing Jesus has done is that he's taken away the penalty of sin. The word take away here means to bear off, to carry away, or to remove. Your guilt, your sin, your shame. And Jewish men and women would have understood this intuitively, their entire history was characterized by sacrifice upon sacrifice upon sacrifice. The whole sacrificial system dominated their culture. It was the sacrifice of an innocent substitute, an innocent 
substitute, namely lambs and, and other animals, but we won't go into all of that since John doesn't. But it was always the sacrifice of an innocent substitute in the place of the one who has sinned or the group of people who have sinned, an innocent substitute. John didn't just refer to Jesus as the Lamb of God. He qualified that statement by saying, who takes away the sin of the world? Notice the word sin here. I mean, the, the, the really glorious things are in the details of studying Scripture. If there had been an S on the end of this word, it would have meant something different and theologically significantly different. But it is a singular word. It is in the singular. It is sin. Not sins, but sin. He takes away the sin of the world. In other words, because Jesus is God, his death was sufficient to atone for the whole mass of sin that constituted all the guilt of humanity from the dawn of time. Let me say it again. Because Jesus is God, his sacrifice constituted everything that we need, atonement for the mass of sin that constitutes all the guilt of all mankind since the dawn of time. Now, if you're thinking, then something in your head should be going something like this. You're not saying everyone is saved, are you? I mean, we haven't bought the Rob Bell thing, have we? Everybody is saved? Is that what you're saying? That's universalism. We believe in universalism. There's a universalist church not too far from here. Everybody comes together with their own ideas about God and they they worship whoever they want all at the same time. It's chaos. Um, It's not universalism. This is not a complete statement of all that the gospel possesses or asserts. It's not universalism. Understand that there's a difference between Jesus' sacrifice being sufficient. Say that word for me. Sufficient. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient, sufficient for all of mankind. That's what John is saying. The death of Christ, the sacrifice of God in Christ was sufficient for every human being who has ever lived and committed any amount of sin. But it is efficient, say the word efficient, it is efficient, we're learning a little theology here, It is efficient only for those who believe. It's like saying this. Um, Let's say that we have ordered lunch for everybody. There's a truck outside. And just go outside and get uh, any kind of burger or salad uh, or shake, ice cream, Coke, anything you want out of that truck today. It's all free. Uh, Now, let me just... Pauls and say, that's not true. This is only an illustration for you boys who are getting really excited. Um, And there is sufficient supply for everybody in this church, more than sufficient. Does that mean that everybody's going to eat? No. It's only efficient for those who go and take the gift. And when it comes to salvation, even that is by grace. 
Even that is by grace. This isn't universalism. What he's trying to reveal to us is the glorious magnitude of the sacrifice of Jesus. It was sufficient to cancel the debt of every single person who has ever lived in the world. In fact, the world, word world here is cosmos. Everything. Everyone. But John knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prediction of the Messiah. Remember Isaiah 53? What a glorious text. Here's a piece of Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he took up, up, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. What do you have? Substitution. An innocent sacrifice being made on behalf of the guilty. That's what the Messiah came to do. In the Old Testament, one of the things the priest would do was they would take a goat, and there was, there was a lot of other things involved in this, and we won't go into all of that, but they would take a goat, and they would take it outside the camp, which is interesting because Hebrews talks about Jesus being led outside the camp. And they would not slaughter, not slaughter this goat. But you know what they would do? The high priest would come over, they would pray a prayer. He'd put his hand on the head of the goat as if to say, all of the sins of all your people, Lord, are now placed upon this goat. But they wouldn't kill the goat. You know what they would do? They'd kick it in the pants, (laughs) And they would chase it away into the desert, into the desert. It would just disappear. What was he doing? The goat was symbolically taking all of the guilt of all of Israel out, away from the people, and into the presence of God. You know, there was a term for this goat. You know what the term was? Scapegoat. It's where that comes from. It comes from the Old Testament image of the gospel. The Old Testament image of the gospel. And this is who Jesus is for the sinner. He is the scapegoat, the innocent substitute who takes upon himself the guilt of sinners and carries it away so that no longer is counted against them. This week, um, I'm kind of diving back into one of my heroes' lives. Uh, Charles Simeon is a pastor in England and suffered so much in his ministry there. Um, I love reading biographies, and his is one of my favorites. One of the brothers in the church gave me a biography of Charles Simeon. By his own testimony, he came to Christ reading a book of sermons written by a Bishop Wilson. And one of those sermons explicitly talked about the Lord's table, and the gospel explaining the gospel. A little context here. Charles Simeon was a, was a college kid. He's going to school. He's the only, well, he would become, he's about to become the only believer he would know for years. This wasn't one believer sharing with another believer verbally about the gospel. This is God so moving in Charles Simeon's life, so calling him out. There were no other believers, just this book. And he picks up this book. He's reading it. Another part of the context here is Simeon 
whatever little bit he knows about God, like Martin Luther, he was scared to death to take the Lord's table because he knew what a vile, wretched sinner he was. And so he really struggled with taking the Lord's table. And this is what he writes in his journal about his salvation. He says, in Passion Week, that's Easter, and in Anglicanism, you know, it's the whole week is a, is a really important week. In Passion Week, I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper. I met in this, in, in this work, I met with an expression to this effect. Now he's quoting. That the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. And the thought came to my mind, what? May I transfer all my guilt upon another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then God willing, I will not bear with them in my soul one moment longer. He writes, accordingly, I sought to lay my sin upon the sacred head of Jesus Christ. And on the Wednesday, I began to have hope of mercy. And on the Thursday, that hope increased. And on the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on the Sunday morning, Easter day, April 4th, I awoke early with these words upon my heart and lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And from that hour, he writes, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. God revealed to him the content, the glorious content of the gospel. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My friends, this is what Jesus has done. And might I just also add, he's done it for you. No matter how sinful, no matter how far from God, you are and feel that you maybe in the past were not. Maybe you feel like you're beyond saving. Or you, maybe you've used the lame excuse, I must not be one of the elect. Just stop that. Do business with God. He's done this for you. If you will but humble yourself and confess that you need what he has provided to take away all your sin and guilt and shame, then it is for you. And the Apostle Paul says it like this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, God was treating Jesus as if he had lived my wretched, miserable, sinful, wicked, evil life. That's why Jesus was nailed to the cross. And God did that to his son so that he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect, holy, pure, righteous life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The message of the gospel is not that Jesus will heal your marriage. 
The message of the gospel is not God, God will increase your self-esteem or to help you find a job or increase your bank account or bring your children back to you. No, the gospel message is this, that all your sin can be forgiven. All your sin can be forgiven. All your guilt can be taken away. You can be reconciled to God. You can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. That's the glorious message of the gospel. And if the people we speak to are not interested in sins forgiven, reconciliation with God based on the forgiveness of sins in Christ, then there's nothing else you can offer them. Yes, there may be residual graces that come out of the gospel once it is received. Yes, will it affect your marriage? Yeah, maybe for the worse. Your husband or wife may not like you coming to Christ. Just read 1 Peter. That's why the whole thing about husbands and wives is in there. People were coming to Christ. Wife would get saved, husband wouldn't, or vice versa. He's got both in, in that passage, chapter 2 and 3. And, uh, and there's strife, there's enmity, there's abuse. The gospel isn't any promise he's going to make your marriage right. The gospel isn't any promise that your business is going to get better. The gospel isn't any promise that you're going to suddenly get healthy and wealthy and socially secure, whatever that is. The gospel is this. In Christ, you can have all your sin forgiven. You interested? In that, if you're not interested in that, then the gospel doesn't offer anything else. It doesn't offer anything else. Beloved, it's so important that we're careful not to water down the gospel, to make it more acceptable, to make it less offensive. I mean, you plead with people, oh, think about, think about what your life could be like. You could be so much happier. Jesus never said that. You can be full of peace and joy in knowing God, knowing Christ, fellowship, prayer. I mean, you're going to be in a relationship with God. That's glorious. But your life on earth might get harder. It might get better. The point is, there isn't any promise about that in the gospel, except that those who resolve to live godly will suffer. And this is the glorious message of the gospel. But if we water it down by saying things like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan to, for your life, you've already begun watering down the gospel. And when you water it down and dilute it, you kill it. And so people find that they put their faith in a, in a Jesus that the Bible doesn't present, a Jesus that is not from the scriptures, and they wonder why uh, God is so far away, why nothing in their heart changes. They, they didn't get the real thing. Because you didn't present the true gospel. Woe to us, woe to us if we get the gospel wrong. It's not hard. It's not hard to get it right. The gospel is about the forgiveness of sins. Imagine John the Baptist saying, God will make you healthy. God will make you wealthy. I mean, here's what John said. You snakes, <laughs> who invited you to come to the water? He didn't care about how it was received. He was committed to getting the gospel right. 
So the true gospel is the only gospel. And when we share it, we need to get it right. Who is Jesus? He is God in flesh. What has he done? He satisfied the wrath of God on the sinner's behalf so that we might be saved. And then final question, how do we know? How do we know? And here we go. Look at verses 32 through 34. John testified saying, and by the way, he, he talks in here about, I didn't know him. It's not that he didn't know Jesus. He, I mean, Jesus was his cousin. Uh, they, were, they were in the same house even before they were born. Remember, John the Baptist leaped at, in Elizabeth's womb because Jesus uh, was, was in Mary's womb. And there was a worship service going on there even before they came out of the womb. Um, they knew each other. They knew each other. It's just this. John didn't know that Jesus, this extraordinary cousin of mine, didn't know he was Messiah. I didn't know that he was going to be the Messiah. I found out when God told me. Here's what he says. I did not recognize him, verse 31, but so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water, he said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon uh, remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. That's the Son of God. That's the Messiah. He's the one you've come to announce. You don't have to worry about who he is yet. You'll know it when you need to know it. And when did he find out? When he baptized Jesus 40 days earlier. How did John know that Jesus was the Christ? God told him. God said, he upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain upon him, this is the one I will baptize in the Spirit. And I want to show this to you just briefly. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Just a couple of verses. Matthew chapter 3. This is a familiar story. We all know this. A little context here beginning with verse 13. Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? So here, here, John already knows something about Christ. He's already had conversation with God, apparently. But Jesus answered him and said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And just as a little parenthetical here, it's not enough that your sins are forgiven. You also need a righteousness that you don't have and you can't earn. It has to come from Christ. So Christ lived for 33 years, why? To fulfill all righteousness so that God could put it on our account. And then he permitted him, verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How did he know that Jesus was the Son of God? He already knew that Jesus was greater than himself. How did he know he was the Son of God? Voice out of heaven. Sufficient evidence? This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. By the way, Peter, James, and John heard the same voice on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah showed up. 
Moses showed up, Peter, James, and John, Jesus, and then the cloud comes, and out of the cloud, the Shekinah glory, we get this voice that says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Listen to his words. Is this sufficient evidence? Do you think John the Baptist had any doubts? No, John was able to so clearly communicate the gospel because he accepted the testimony of the highest authority that exists in the universe, that Jesus is the Christ. He had heard and received and believed the word of God. Now, how can we be convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Here's how. By accepting the testimony of the highest authority that exists in the universe. What is that testimony? It's in your hand. It is the Bible. It is the Word of God. You too have heard the Word of God. You hear the Word of God every time your, pay, your eyes alight on some verse of Scripture. You are hearing the Word of God. That's the testimony. It is the only first-person eyewitness testimony on earth about the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is absolutely sufficient to reconcile sinners to God. Your job and my job is simply to read it, to study it, to know it, and share it with everyone we know. We exist for this purpose, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God, in the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here. Let me just qualify it like I did last week. I realize not everybody's evangelist. Not everybody's a pastor. Not everybody's a gifted teacher. Uh, some of us aren't gifted very well in mercy or in discernment or in helps. Some are gifted in evangelism. But not all. In fact, few. But everyone is called to be a witness for Christ. And we don't have to know a lot of theology. We do what witnesses do. Regardless of how people may respond, what they may think of us, he must increase, we must decrease. This is what I know about Jesus. This is what I know about Jesus. This is what he's done in my life. The heart of witnessing, the heart of witnessing, we talked about last week, is to live a life before the world as one who minimizes self and magnifies Christ. The message of our witness is that Christ is, is the Son of God who came to earth to be the Lamb of God so that sinners could be given the privilege of being called children of God. And that's what the gospel's about. You know it? You've received it? Have you embraced it? Are you sharing it? Are you telling people in the office, in your neighborhood, on the plane, on the bus, in school, wherever it is, your family, your friends? Oh, beloved, we have, we have much work to do in this area as a church. I have much work to do on this in my own life and with my family. But let's covenant together that we will be faithful to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and get the gospel right, that through us God may draw more sinners to himself and they'll be reconciled to God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hour. Thank you for your word, which speaks so clearly to us. We can understand it and apply it to our own lives. Lord, your spirit does that. Bring upon us, Father, the conviction of the spirit to change in all the practical ways you deem necessary.
And make us, Father, by your grace and for your glory, adequate witnesses of Jesus Christ so that others will come and discover the joy that we have found in him. These things we pray by the authority of Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.